If you could turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, as we continue our series in eschatology. Uh, this week, we're going to be looking at some of the details. We saw some details last week with regard to the return of Christ, and today, details on which <clears throat> is also called the Day of the Lord and how we ought to live in light of that. This is the day of the Lord that the Lord, the Lord has promised. So 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Hear now God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word to us this morning. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring you up <clears throat> stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your, through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But we do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, uh, that you would help us to understand it. Fill me, Lord, with your spirit. I pray that everything that I say is glorifying and pleasing to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, Ursula and I have bit of a running joke, but it's kind of serious, kind of a joke. I don't know how you want to say it, but there's one word that we say is off limits, and it's the word relax. So for example, Ursula will say, you know, John, why did you take the last brownie? I was dreaming all day, or as Ursula would say, all day. I was dreaming all day for that. <laughs> and then me, I say, Honey, it's okay. Relax. And Ursa says, you know, don't tell me to relax. And then me, I say, okay, how about this? Take it easy. And Ursa says, well, that's much better, but I still can't believe you took my last brownie. 
Well, one of my favorite least expressions, or I should say one of my least favorite expressions is just be patient. Just be patient. Maybe it's yours as well. You see, I'm in a rush all the time. Uh, yes, you know, no matter what I'm doing, it's very rare. It's, I have to get from point A to point B as fast as possible. It doesn't matter what's going on. So just be patient. Yet patience is something that the Lord not only exhorts us to, but puts on full display since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. And as we will see in our text, he continues to display this incredible patience as we await the return of Christ. Now we come to 2 Peter, and we see that this is 2 Peter, which means it's the second letter that Peter has written to these churches that are in Asia Minor, that modern-day Turkey. And he's writing to encourage them in the midst of, of persecution and in the midst of false teachers who had infiltrated the church and they were denying Christ and his redemptive work on their behalf. And what Peter does is he, he grounds their assurance in Christ by saying that he and the apostles didn't follow cleverly devised fables when they made them aware of the gospel of Christ. They were eyewitnesses, he says, of Christ's majesty. They lived with him. They saw him do incredible miracles. They heard the voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. They saw him raise the dead. They saw him die a brutal death on a Roman cross. They witnessed his bodily resurrection and his ascension into heaven. They didn't follow cleverly devised fables. This is the absolute truth that they were willing to stake their very lives upon. And after rebuking the false teachers in chapter 2, he now focuses attention on the second coming of Christ, which he calls the day of the Lord. Day of the Lord. It's an expression found all throughout the prophets that speak of a day when the Lord would bring judgment upon the enemies of God and God's people, and then bring salvation to his people. So when Christ comes and he dies on the cross for our sins, rises from the dead, ascends into heaven, the early believers are like, then surely Christ is going to return at any moment. When's it going to happen? That's the next thing here on the list. But it didn't happen immediately. And so people began to scoff. Where is the day of the Lord, this promised day of the Lord? And what Peter does is he basically demolishes their objection, and in the process he reassures them of God's promise that the day of the Lord will come, not in their timetable, not in my impatient timetable, but on God's timetable, his patient timetable, if you will. And so the main idea we're going to look at this morning is this, is that we must be holy and hasten the day, the promised day of the Lord, since it will be in his patient timing. We must be holy and hasten the promised day of the Lord that will happen in his patient timing. Four points we're going to look at this morning. Since it's Thanksgiving, you get a bonus point. And so the first point is the promised day of the Lord will happen in God's timing. Verses 1 through 4, we see 
that Peter says he wants to stir them. He reminds them of the promised day of the Lord. Three times, as Timothy pointed out for us, three times in this passage, he refers to this day of the Lord as the promise of the Lord. Three times. I wonder if Peter's trying to make a point there about the promise of the Lord, that this is going to actually happen. And that's very much unlike us, right? We make promises, and for whatever reason, those promises don't come to pass. But, dear ones, God's promises always, always, always come to pass. We see the unfolding promises of God from Genesis through the New Testament, fulfilled by the seed of the woman, that is Christ. Christ is the true temple. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the true Israel. He is the true Lamb of God who died on the cross for our sins, who crushed the head of the serpent as he bore the curse of God on behalf of those for whom he died and then rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And the final promise now that awaits to be fulfilled is that Christ will return in glory to create a new heavens and a new earth. And Peter reassures them of God's promise by pointing them to God's word, to the word of the prophets and the commandments of the apostles, Peter and the others. Grounds them, points them to the absolute bedrock of God's word. This is how you can know for sure God's word and all that we are testifying to you. And he says that there will be scoffers in the last days. The last days, the entire period of time from Christ's first coming to his second coming. There will be scoffers in that period of time. They're going to come. So don't be surprised. And they're going to be driven, he says, by their sinful desires. These sinful desires we know in the rest of the letter are rooted in, in greed and sexual immorality. And they're saying, where is, notice, the promise? Where is the promise of coming? All things continue as they have from the very beginning of creation. And so they're mocking God. They're challenging God. And they're challenging them. You can't trust God. There's going to be no final judgment. This life is all that there is. Anytime you like, with whoever you like, be what you like, have whatever pronoun you like. Doesn't matter, because this life is all that there is. And so we see there's one little problem that they have here. The problem is that they deliberately, Peter says, overlook. That is, they deliberately forget the facts. It's a willful forgetting. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 1, how man sees how the eternal power and nature of God clearly revealed in nature, how we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They were holding this down. They forget the truth. See, first, things don't continue the same as they have since creation. They forget the fall, evidently, since the fall of man, there, it brought in cosmic futility. It brought in disorder and death and decay. 
Paul says in Romans 8 that the entire creation groans. And then, of course, they forget that God brought judgment in the days of Noah by the word of God, he says. Now, we remember in chapter 2, actually, in 2 Peter, Peter calls Noah a preacher of righteousness. He was preaching the gospel. He didn't know when the judgment would come. All he knew was, was that it was going to come. And it came. And when it came, I saw this meme here. They, they said Noah was crazy. Then the rain came and the fact checkers were drowned the end. <laughs> that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> Repent. It's going to happen. 120 years. No, it's not. Shut up, Noah. What do you know? <laughs> 120 years, that's what happens. Jesus says that it was in the days of Noah. He uses this as well. It's in the days of Noah that at his coming that, that, that people be going about their lives as they normally do, eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, and then suddenly judgment will come, only it'll be different. Here, by the same word, Peter says, the word of judgment, the current heavens and earth that now exist are being stored up for fire until the day of judgment and the destruction of the godly. Now, we're going to look more about that in a little bit, but for now, just as God promised and rained down judgment in the days of Noah, and only those in the ark were saved and the rest were destroyed, so too the final judgment will come to pass in God's own time, and it will result in the destruction of the ungodly. That is, of all those who are not in the ark of Christ, who alone can bring us through the fiery judgment at the last day, because he endured a baptism of fire, as it were, as he endured the fire of God's wrath on the cross for all who would believe. And understand that this destruction doesn't mean that they're going to be totally obliterated and annihilated. The destruction is an eternal perishing in a place the Bible says is hell. Hell is hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so they forget that. They forget about what happened in the past. They also forget the fact that God isn't on our timetable. You know, we think that God, that we think God is slow, but Peter says, and he's quoting Psalm 90, verse 4, a thousand years is as a day, and a day to the Lord is as a thousand years. So the point is that God isn't on our timetable. He is eternal. A thousand years is as a blink of an eye to him. The creation of the universe at the sheer power of his word, was like yesterday to him. Not even yesterday, it was two seconds ago to God. And so from God's perspective, this isn't long. It's short. He's not slow. We're just human. <laughs> As we used to say, 
in one of my former church contexts, God may not show up when you want him to, but he's always on time. <laughs> always, always on time. So an application here, you know, we see this, uh, this delay from our perspective. It's easy for us to get discouraged. We think about the people at this time, 30 years maybe had gone by, and here they are, they're discouraged. They're enduring the scoffing. They're enduring the ridicule and the mocking. Where is Christ? It's only been about 30 years, maybe less, 20 years, depending on the date of the letter. And they were already discouraged. Now here we are 2,000 years later. And then we see how our brothers and sisters down through the ages have had to deal with the same kind of mocking and scoffing. And we see today, we see the culture crumbling all around us. We see how we are going to be, our brothers and sisters in other parts of the country are enduring such incredible persecution for the sake of Christ. And get ready, I'm pretty sure it's going to come here very soon. So what's the answer to all this? Well, the answer is for us is to stay encouraged. And how do we stay encouraged? Well, we stay encouraged by living for Christ and proclaiming his word despite what the world says. Well, how do we do that? By relying on the means of grace, God's word, the sure word, the rock of his word, and prayer, and the church. That's why the church is so important. That's why we need each other, the covenant community. We are walking through this pilgrim journey through the wilderness of this world together. Together, by the power of God's Spirit. And then we rest in, listen, the promise of God. There's a lot of things that I don't know. I know Ursula will be surprised to know that. <laughs> There's a lot of things I don't know on each fruit. <laughs> but what I do know is this is that the promises of God are yes and amen. That I can stand on the promises of God. Not only can I stand upon them, I must stand upon them. Because they're true. They come from the, the mouth, breathed out through his human authors, from, from the God who created the vast galaxies that we see. I can trust in his promise. Even when it seems like I can't. Even when the devil whispers in my ear, John, you can't trust. Yes, I can. How do you know? Because Christ is risen. That's how. The tomb is empty. Trust in his promise, dear one. Trust in that promise. And set your gaze not on this world, but on the one to come. So that's the first point. Second point, the promised day of the Lord hasn't happened yet because of God's patience. I'm so glad that God has patience. <laughs> you know, we say that God is holy, holy, holy. Every single attribute of his is holy. But as I was reflecting on this passage, I thought we could say that God is also patient, patient, patient when we think about sinful man. Now, the question isn't, we see disasters happen, we see these things. The question isn't, how could God allow that to happen? The question is, why doesn't God 
do that like all the time? Why does he bear with humanity? Verse 9, Peter shows a deeper concern from God's perspective, namely desire that not any perish but all reach repentance. Now that raises a difficult question in our minds, at least I hope it does. I hope you're feeling, what does he mean by that? Because, <laughs> because we know, first of all, let's take it from the perspective that God knows everything. He's omniscient. He knows the beginning from the end. So if God just, put this, just a, this is plain omniscience already knows who will and who won't be saved, he's known that from all eternity, how can he desire that, that not any would perish and that all would reach repentance? How can he really desire that? Well, we also know that the Bible teaches clearly, as we think Ephesians chapter 1, that God has chosen a multitude of hell-deserving sinners in Christ before the foundation of the world. They and only they will be saved. So how do we reconcile that? It's a difficult question. A couple ways we can work through it is, first of all, we, we talk about God's will. We talk about his will of decree and his will of command. His will of decree. That is all the things that God has ordained from the foundation of the world. Everything that transpires on earth was decreed by God before he created the universe. And all those things will happen without fail. And so all those for whom that God chose in eternity past in Christ will be infallibly saved. We know that. But then from the perspective of his will of command, his will of command, in time God has commanded, well, he's given us his commands. He gives us his Ten Commandments. He tells all people everywhere to repent. So from the perspective of his will of command, he would desire people to obey his commandments. But only those who are chosen in Christ will actually obey those commands because they've been raised from spiritual life, from spiritual death to spiritual life, and enabled to do that. Now that's one way, and there's certain, that is true. We can talk about it that way. But the best way to understand this text here, I think, is to remember who Peter is writing to. And here I have a new game to introduce to you for Thanksgiving, just in time for Thanksgiving. And it's the game called Follow the Pronoun. I drew a picture for you. Follow the Pronoun. There it's, kids can play. See, they're at the table as well. I did, you got the chairs, there's the board. I, me, we, us, he, she, they, there, you, your, you, plural, y'all. There it is. Follow the pronoun. And when we follow the pronoun, what do we have here? You go back. He says that he is patient toward you. Toward, second person plural, you all. Or, as they say in Texas, y'all. Who is the y'all here? Who is the y'all? Well, at verse 8. Verse 8, he tells us who the y'all is. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand and so on. Verse 1, he goes back. This is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. Not the scoffers, but the beloved. Beloved, the love of God. And so y'all is the beloved who are the any and the all that God doesn't want to perish. 
And so God is patient toward you all, that is, the beloved, that is, to every person chosen in Christ from the foundation of the world. Though chosen in Christ, we aren't born saved. I hope that didn't come as a newsflash to you. <laughs> Though chosen in Christ, we weren't born saved. Paul belabors this in Ephesians chapter 2. We were born dead in our trespasses and sins. We were object of God's wrath like the rest, but God. And so we were born as sinners. We were born in need of salvation. We needed to be saved. And so the idea here is that God is patient waiting until the full number of Christ's sheep chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world could be gathered by and in Christ. That's the idea here. The Apostle Paul gets at this in 2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the scoffers. Oh, wait, for the sake of the elect, that they who may be scoffers at that time, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That's the idea. And so, as a matter of practical application for my own life, God, by his grace, saved me. And I, you know, some of us know the exact date. Others, I know the exact date. I know exactly what I was doing. I can tell you all the details. It was December the 18th, 1994. I won't tell you all the details because we'll be here all day. So, December the 18th, 1994. If Christ had come back before that, I wouldn't be saved. See? He endures all things for the sake of the elect. He's patient with you. With all of his sheep chosen before time that they might come to experience this salvation which they've been chosen unto. See, and that's the case for every single Christian in this room and on the face of the planet. If Christ would have come back before you, by God's grace, exercised saving faith in Christ, you would not be saved. The reason you're saved, dear one, is because of God's patience and mercy. That's why we're saved. That's what Peter is getting at, I think. And so Christ will save every one of his sheep. Not one will be lost. And when that last sheep is gathered to Christ, it is then that Christ will return, not a second sooner and not a second later. And so, verse 10, he's patient, but we also see the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Will come like a thief. Jesus mentioned this in Matthew chapter 24. It'll be sudden. It'll be without warning. Be like the days of Noah. Going about our business, and then the end is there. Total destruction and transformation, which takes us to the third point. The promised day of the Lord will bring about a new heavens and a new earth. Verse 10 and 12, the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, will immediately, listen, will immediately result in the heavens and the heavenly bodies, that is the elements being burned up, dissolved, and melted away. In other words, Christ isn't going to come back and then live on earth for a long period of time, and then this is going to happen. 
No, the day of the Lord, when this happens, instantaneous. This is what's going to happen. Now, the prophets here speak of this. We saw Timothy quoted it in our uh, call to worship, Isaiah 65, for behold, the Lord will come in fire to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire, for by fire will the Lord enter into his judgment. And there's many other passages from the prophets that we could include here, passages that speak about the mountains melting and, and all these different things. Now, there's a couple things here that we have to look at. First of all, the entire created order will be affected and will pass away. Two physicists in their book called The Left Hand of Creation said this, the final state will be chaotic and violent. All galaxies, stars, and atoms will dissolve into nuclei and radiation. Then the nuclei will be dismembered into protons and neutrons. They, in turn, will be squeezed until the, uh, until the quarks confined with them are liberated into a huge cosmic soup of freely interacting quarks and leptons. Translation, it's going to be totally different. <laughs> this order of creation was going to pass away. That's what he's saying. Total, the building blocks of the current order will be done away with. Whereas the days of Noah, the earth was deluged with water and all life died. What will happen on the day of the Lord will be cosmic in its scope and instead of water, it will involve this idea of fire dissolving. New heavens, new earth. We'll get to that in a minute. And as a result of this, we see that the earth and works done will be exposed. All will have to give account to the Lord for everything you've done, everything you've thought, everything you've said. The day of the Lord, judgment. Fire also calls to mind the imagery of a refining fire that will burn away all the dross of decay of the fall, have a transformed creation and a renewed creation. The entire creation transformed as well as us. All the impurities that resulted in the futility that the creation has suffered under now has been subjected to will be burned away as dross. So the day of the Lord won't be utter destruction of the created order, but, verse 13, a creation of a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In which righteousness dwells. No sin. As we say, we've been delivered from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. One day we'll be set free from the very presence of sin itself. We talked about that new creation a little bit last week. What's it going to be like? We don't know. We just know it's going to be awesome. There's going to be no sin. It's going to be perfect. There's going to be no suffering, no tears, no pain, no sin. Christ will be with us face to face. This will be cosmic in its scope. Now, couple applications here. Again, I said we note that when Christ returns, this is what is going to occur. There's no delay in this. But I want to look at another uh, application here. It involves what's going on in our modern culture a little bit. You know, many, uh, we're all familiar with uh, all those uh, end-of-the-world disaster movies. I'm sure we've seen them all. Armageddon, Asteroid, Ice Age. 
impact 2009, impact. Here's the, here's the blurb for impact to give you a sense. Quote, a rogue asteroid smashes into the moon and becomes the catalyst for a potential collision between the moon and planet Earth. The world's leading scientists, because we all know scientists are the saviors of the world, have 39 days to stop the moon's course or the Earth and all of mankind will perish. What's going to happen? <laughs> or we have real life. Real life. Daily we hear of the terrifying effects of climate change, formerly known as global warming, formerly known as global cooling, and how the world will cease to exist in 12 years, but it's been two years since that, and many years since the first predictions were made about that. Unless we do something, we have to do something. We have to give certain politicians more power and control over our lives as they rake in millions from green energy corporations based on information from scientists that they bought and paid for. And so these heroic politicians promise that their policies will save the planet from imminent disaster. These brave heroes leave their sprawling multi-million dollar estates right in full-size SUVs to the airport where they board their private jet to fly off to the next climate conference, escorted by a 25-car motorcade when they land, and they talk about the huge carbon footprint that you and I are leaving trying to heat our homes and drive our cars to work. Well, despite their promises, and by the way, the climate is changing all the time, pretty much. Despite their promises about the Earth's demise from climate change and their promise to save the Earth and humanity, we know that it's all false. How do we know it's all false? Because God's Word has told us how the, word, how the Earth's going to end. Or shall we say, be renewed. And so, listen, don't be discouraged and walk around in fear at the prophets of doom in the culture. This is how. You've got this story right here. This is how it's going to end. So don't be alarmed. But be alerted about the real change of climate that will happen at the last day. So it raises the question, what are you living for? Everything we do will be laid bare on Judgment Day. Only those in Christ will stand in the judgment to come. And even believers will give an account. We will give an account. Not to determine whether or not we're saved, but determine degree of reward. That takes us to our last point. We must be holy as we wait and hasten the promised day of the Lord. Verses 10 through 13, like Noah, we don't know when the day of the Lord is going to come. We just know that it will. With absolute certainty. And it will come like a thief. Suddenly. And so you need to be ready. We need to live in light of the promise. How? Well, Peter says, in holiness. That is, set apart from moral purity and in godliness. as doing what pleases God. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, he says. Day of God. A little 
inference there that this is talking about Christ, and an inference there to the divinity of Christ, not really an inference, really a direct statement about the divinity of Christ. And so we're supposed to reflect the image of Christ in all that we think, say, and do, and let the light of Christ shine from within us in the world. And at the center of this is declaring his word, doing the works that God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Those works are all centered on the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of the nations. Spread the gospel over the entire world. And that's what I want to do. And I know that's what you want to do. I want to live my life in light of the fact that Jesus is Lord. He could return at any time. And I want to be found being about the Father's business. Loving him, pleasing him, serving him. I don't want to spend my time, as we talked about last week, like Solomon in Ecclesiastes, chasing after the wind. I want to spend my time consumed with Christ and the things of Christ and his word. Well, that's easy for you to say, John, because you're a pastor. That's all you do. <laughs> yeah, but I remember when I wasn't a pastor, when I was in the military and I was working. All I wanted to do was be consumed with Christ. In my job, consumed with Christ and do my work as unto the Lord in the workplace. And in my marriage with my wife and my son to be the father that God has called me to be to his glory. And then to interact with my friends and my co-workers and my neighbors and everyone else to be able to, to share the good news of the gospel. I thought Christ has come from heaven. And he died on the cross. He rose from the grave to save sinners like you and like me. And there's coming a day of judgment. Are you ready for that? How do I get ready? Turn to Christ. That's what I want my life to, to revolve around. I want to encourage you that you would have your life revolve around that as well. Holy and godly and notice, as we live this way, we hasten, speed along the coming day of God. How do we speed along the coming of Christ? Well, the Lord said that he won't come until the gospel has gone to all the nations. So the implication is this, is that the sooner that the church, by the power of the Spirit, in God's grace, fulfills its mission and brings the gospel so that it covers the earth, and God, by his spirit, brings sinners to saving faith in Christ, the sooner Christ will come. That's how we hasten it, by being about the Father's business of bringing the gospel to the nation. And that Christ is going about his business of saving lost sinners, sweeping them into the kingdom. And when that last sinner is saved, that's it. So we hasten the day of the Lord by being living sacrifices for him, committed to the advance of the kingdom. We hasten the day of the Lord by praying, your kingdom come, and praying for those who are in authority so that the gospel can move without hindrance, praying for our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers, praying that Christ will embolden us to proclaim the gospel and that he would raise the spiritual dead to spiritual life. Much to say there. 
But I don't know about you. As we wait for the return of the Lord, I want to hasten that as well. Come, Lord Jesus. But we have work to do to see the gospel go forward to the nations. So as I come here, as I bring this to a close, we, we have seen that the day of the Lord will happen, and when it does, it will result in judgment, the creation of a new heavens and a new earth for those who don't know Christ. They will be facing the judgment of an eternity in hell. An eternity of weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is what drove Jesus to sweat drops of blood in Gethsemane, contemplating as he went to the cross, he bore the hell that we deserve. And so if you're here today, or if you're watching by YouTube, live stream, I want to plead with you to turn to Christ today. Today is the day. Yeah, but I... Listen, you're never going to have all your questions answered, ever. What you have is the sure promise of God in Christ. What you have is an empty tomb. What you have is a Savior who died on the cross to save you. Now turn to him. Flee from the wrath to come. Flee to the one who bore your wrath on the cross. The free gift. Receive it today. And if you have... We don't know when Christ will return. But we have the sure promise that he will return. And so, rejoice. <laughs> yes! Christ is coming again. And I'm in Christ. And now I want to live for Christ. I want to be holy for Christ and live godly for Christ. Not to get anything because I have everything in Christ. And I want to see this gospel move forward throughout the whole world. Because it's through that, that that people are saved by God's Spirit. And so let us be invigorated then to see the kingdom of Christ expand over the earth. To hasten the day of the Lord as we go about our lives, living lives that are pleasing to Him for His glory to see the fame of Jesus spread over the world. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word for your grace toward us in Christ. Help us, Lord, to apply these very challenging, this very challenging passage to our lives, Lord. Help us not to be discouraged, Lord, but to keep our eyes fixed on you and to stand upon the rock of Christ and to hold tightly to your promise that you will indeed return. We're thankful, Lord, that you have brought us through, safely through the judgment that will come. We thank you for the perfect righteousness by which we've been clothed. Help us now to live lives that are pleasing to you in Jesus' name. Amen.